Welcome, everyone, to an episode of Sayonara Baseball. My name is Brandon Beiser. I'm one of the co-hosts of Sayonara Baseball, Kazuki Akiba. Kazuki and I are still waiting for the trade deadline in Major League Baseball to pass. Once that passes and we can re- put all our news and sources together to bring you an episode shortly thereafter, we will do so. Until that time, with the events of the Olympics going on, we wanted to revisit a conversation that we had with Skylar Brandt, one of the principal dancers in American Ballet Theater. For those of you who did not listen to the episode, a quick understanding of what we talked about, Skylar Brandt has risen the ranks of American Ballet Theater in about a decade. And we wanted to discuss with her how you build up that character and strength and technique to go through all the ranks. And then we talked about what it was like to step up in moments of complete unexpected change and how to adjust and perform in ways that you probably didn't expect to do so. And that propelled her to where she is today as one of the faces of that company. And now I want to bring your attention to what has been going on in Tokyo, Japan during the 2020 Olympics right now. Simone Biles, arguably the greatest of all time in women's gymnastics, frankly, in all of gymnastics, made a decision to withdraw from the team competition in women's gymnastics and also so far at this time, the all or individual all-around competition to focus on her mental health. She made a decision that has been widely discussed throughout news, social media. The topics that she brought up about focusing on bettering the team, understanding her own well-being and what she what she could and could not do with the focus and drive that she had really committed herself to reminded us of these topics that we had discussed with Skylar in kind of a somewhat similar way. And then something even more magical happened in Tokyo in terms of the, the relationship to our stories that we discussed with Skylar. One of the other qualifiers from Team USA in the individual all-around was Suni Lee, the pride of St. Paul, Minnesota. With Simone Biles not participating in the individual all-around, all eyes were on Suni Lee to represent the U.S. on Jade Carey, who had stepped in as the next qualifier from Team USA. But Suni Lee was now the was now the front runner from Team USA. And then Suni Lee won gold. And that reminded us of the story where Skylar Brandt had to step in for the face, so to speak, of American Life Theater, Misty Copeland, because Misty had fallen with injury on a performance before Skylar had her most notable debut in 2020. Therefore, we wanted to rebroadcast our interview with Skylar. It's a lengthy one. You can listen to parts as you wish, especially the very last segment, which is about this episode where she had to step in for Misty Copeland. But the buildup and understanding how she took center stage and learned how to handle the pressures just reminded us of the grand nature of what Simone Biles has discussed with us and shown us throughout the past week. This episode is not really baseball related, and we frankly don't even care that it's baseball. It's just about how to understand how an elite athlete garners the strength and mental fortitude to be the best at their craft. We hope you enjoy a rebroadcast of our interview with Skylar Brandt. And we'll hope to see you soon with another episode of Sayonara Baseball. From Daylight, I'm Kazuki Akiba. I'm Brandon Beiser. 
and this is Sound Eye Baseball. This is a podcast where you and I find unseen baseball gems by analyzing them alongside different trends, news, and motivation behind many moves around the league today. And today, we discuss becoming an elite professional athlete. And here to talk more about this is Skylar Brand, our principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. There goes Adele again, and Shohei blasts the ball into dead center field. That one's out by the batter's eye, and it clears the batter's eye. A home run and a bomb there by Shohei Otani. It's- Welcome, everyone, to our fourth and possibly our final offseason episode. The MLB season is scheduled to begin in a couple of weeks. April 1st is when the big opening night will proceed through. Uh, before we get through that, and we begin our episode today, our last offseason interview, as we always have done in our many interviews uh, throughout the offseason, we spend a couple minutes up front with our moments of tribute and moments of honor. And today we have two. Since our last episode, which we taped in February, March 11th has passed. March 11th is in America is kind of the, the unofficial anniversary, the official anniversary in some case, of the day that health crisis really became a crisis to most of us. It became very public and very personal. And on behalf of Kazuki and myself, we want to offer a very sincere, gracious thank you to our frontline heroes and those serving our communities, uh, everyone who has done something to serve their fellow human throughout this time. We greatly appreciate that because with, with your work and your efforts, we can do this, even if it's over Zoom. Like We can still record an, a podcast because we're healthy, we're safe, and we're able to do that. And we greatly, greatly appreciate that. Uh, and we like to say, we hope that you continue to work and serve your communities thereafter because we would like to continue to thank you. Make sure your efforts are recognized. And with that, we'll move on to an unfortunately somber note. Um, more somber note. Since our last episode, there was a, a, an unfortunate passing in the baseball community, and that was the passing of ESPN baseball reporter Pedro Gomez. Pedro Gomez covered baseball for, felt like, 30 years. Uh, most notably, he worked at ESPN. He had several newspaper positions before that. There's stories abound about from his passing that happened right around the Super Bowl. Pedro Gomez, to Kazuki and I, has several important moments, uh, and we'll go through a couple of them. For me, it started in the mid-2000s. I was in high school, and the stories about Barry Bonds are coming about, about the Balco scandal. And Pedro Gomez, the intrepid reporter he is, is just pacing back and forth San Francisco, just going up to locker rooms, going up to people, anyone he can talk to, to get information from some, someone about Barry Bonds. So I had talked to Barry Bonds, and that commitment to the topic and to the news is something that I was greatly appreciative at the time because I didn't know what this was. Barry Bonds was this Hall, Hall of Fame sounding name. Same with Mark McGuire. Like everyone was talking about this person and I needed to know more about it. And on ESPN, it was Pedro Gomez. And that's who I remember talking to me about this very important moment in baseball history. I'll let Kazuki offer his uh, moment of, of remembrance for Pedro too before we come back to it. Pedro has been influencing all of our lives throughout his time reporting at ESPN. And, you know, growing up at, on ESPN, I would watch his news coverage quite a bit. But the one that really struck me the most was actually uh, when he was reporting from Miami. 
the wake of a tragic death of a uh, Miami Marlins uh, ace, Jose Fernandez. Uh, Jose Fernandez was 20-something-year-old, very young, rising superstar who died in a tragic uh, boat accident. And that really struck me emotionally just because of how like amazing this player was, but also how he was great to the uh, community of Miami, considering that he's a Cuban-born player uh, coming in. And Miami, as you guys may know, has a very huge Cuban population. And just being able to um, understand what's great about Pedro is he knows how to connect his players in the community. So because he knows how to connect with them, he strikes his very strong empathy in his storytelling. And I think not many uh, reporters could really replicate that. And because he knew how to talk about this community from Cuba, as well as uh, Jose Fernandez, who he's reported over the years, it just struck me, like just knowing about this uh, story and relationship. And I think not many people could do something like that today. The stories about Miami are incredibly important. Uh, Pedro Gomez is a son of Miami. His parents uh, fled there from Cuba uh, and Pedro was born there. And I think that's where we, we resound our final moment of remembrance for Pedro Gomez. There's a, an interview that Pedro did with Scott Van Pelt on Scott Van Pelt Sports Center several years ago while Pedro was in Cuba covering a Tampa Bay Devil Ray, Tampa Bay Rays exhibition game. And as we look at it now, we talk about Randy Razarena several times over the past episodes. Randy Razarena is a Cuban. So if you think about that, even that connection to this moment. But Pedro Gomez was standing in the middle of the square in Havana, it's the central square. And he was just talking about how beautiful the moment was to stood, stand where his father and mother had stood under a regime that incited such fear in them. And he could speak freely. And that meant the world to him. And Pedro Gomez was the archetype for a reporter that could transition in bilingual nature. He could record, he could record an interview in English, Spanish, and just inter interchange so beautifully. And he welcomed every baseball player into his life, every interviewer, interviewee, by saying, you can't speak English? You've limited English? I don't care. I will speak Spanish with you. And we think about how important that is in any sport. If you speak French, Russian, Arabic, Japanese, you could just go back and forth so quickly. And Pedro Gomez was that for an, a league that was so popular with Latin American, Latin American fans and players. So we'll, we'll, we, we remember Pedro fondly, and I will sign off this segment, just as he signed off many of his segments with many of his interviews. Pedro Gomez, gracias, mi hermano. And as we remember Pedro fondly, we go to the topic of what we're going to talk about today. As, as we kind of alluded to in several topics, we had topics we wanted to talk about from many things, from Todd Radom to Corey Earle to Smith Brickner, about all different topics. And we kind of found a way to beautifully blend them all together. So Todd Radom brought up a lot with their Mental League Baseball Conference about community, about being together and what those meant. See, off, off air, he brought up all things about athleticism, science, about all the things that influence the game of baseball and what makes it great. Corey talked about coaching. Well, I was like to raise and train people to be great in a sport. And then Smith talked about the Angela Duckworth Grit book, the book that really explained what emotional, what EQ is, the emotional quotient of somebody. So talk about like their, their, their mental power, their mental fortitude. So Kazuki and I sat down after that interview in February with Smith and really focused on what could we do to talk about this? So we thought about, let's bring on a, someone who has made a profession out of being an athlete, who has really reached the mountaintop or is on a pace to reach the mountaintop. But we said one rule, no athletes, no team athletes, no baseball players, no basketball players, no soccer players, because we want to try something different. We've always tried something different. Let's try something different. 
we were lucky enough to reach out to someone who could do this for us. We considered what we want this person to be. We thought about people who perform on stage and screen mainly because they work tirelessly. Producers, directors, engineers behind the scenes, actors, singers, band members in front of the screen. And what we looked at was the fact that they have to commit themselves to training for many years, participating in development activities, academies, programs, training programs for years on end. They will develop skills about physical, mental, and emotional strength that frankly, what it feels like to a, to a lay person feels insurmountable. How'd you do that? They perform throughout the year, sometimes multiple times during a day, just like an athlete does. Think about baseball, players 162 games a year. And they rehearse and practice constantly. And with that, we were lucky to find someone to show us what it's like to learn how to be an elite athlete. And that is Skylar Brandt. Skylar Brandt today is a principal dancer in American Ballet Theater. Her journey is remarkable. She joined the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis School at the American Ballet Theater from uh, 2005, which is a training program associated with American Ballet Theater. She made a commitment at that early age. So they then joined the studio company, American Ballet Theater, which is one step below the main company, but it's, it's your pathway to the main company. Kind of like how there's a minor leagues. This is kind of like the minor leagues, so to speak. It's like, it's, it's a training program. It's one more step up. And then she joined the main company as an apprentice. So she was part of the main company, the company that could potentially perform on stage around the world. She was an apprentice in that group in 2010. 2011, she joins the Corps de Ballet, which is the large group of those who are first joining the company, the main company, in minor roles throughout several performances. And then in 2015, she became a soloist, which is the second highest rank in American Ballet Theater. So you can see her name featured in several performances now. In 10 years, she had gone from the academy to being a potential featured role. And then the call came in September of 2020, six months ago. She became one of 15 or 16 individuals to reach the highest position with American Ballet Theater, and that is a principal dancer. Names that you might know who are also principal dancers are Misty Copeland and Devin Tusher. There are two names that I knew about before I knew that Skylar had reached a position. And we're going to talk to her today about what it was like to go on that 15-year journey and where she sees herself going now. Because she has become an elite athlete over the course of 15 years and more of training and coaching and development. So after the break, we'll have the pleasure and honor of speaking with Skylar Brandt about her journey. As we all know, there's no crying in baseball, and there's definitely not in ballet either. Next month, the Boca Ballet Theater will present Spring Ball at Spanish River High School. Welcome back to Sayonara Baseball, and we are honored and delighted to bring in our guest for today's podcast, Skylar Brandt, a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater. Skylar, welcome to Sayonara Baseball. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> We're so glad you are here. And as we do with all of our guests, we start with the first pitch as any baseball game would start. So we would like to know what was it like for you to perform for the first time in a featured role with American Ballet Theater? Oh, my goodness. It was pretty incredible. Um, I had grown up watching ABT uh, as a kid, um, you know, I completely idolized uh, the other dancers in the company. And I just knew that this was 
the place that I wanted to be, the company and organization I wanted to work with. And so when I was, I think I was 20 years old, um, I got to do my first principal role with American Ballet Theater. I was performing in Alexei Ratmansky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1. And I was performing opposite Gillian Murphy, who is a super legendary, super famous ballerina with American Ballet Theater. And I just remember um, feeling like it was so surreal to be carrying a performance alongside one of these idols that I grew up watching. And um, I knew after I got a taste of what that felt like to lead a ballet and to be such an integral part of uh, the piece that this was something I wanted to keep striving for. Um, it was basically all of my little girl dreams uh, come, you know, come true uh, in that moment. That's great. And like you said, that moment, will re you'll remember it forever. It's like any person makes a debut in their first game, their first performance, they're, they're there. And it's like, you sit there and you just look out on stage and it's like, I'm here. And with that, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll go back to those, what you said, those, those little girl dreams. So what, why did you choose to join the school associated with American Ballet Theater when you were so young? Like what, what created that decision to really get you to say, I'm going to commit to this and see where it goes. I remember, um, as I mentioned, I was being from New York, I would grow up watching American Ballet Theater performances. And I just really, um, fell in love with everything about the art form, the music, the costumes, the stories. Um, and to me, I was watching, you know, adults playing princesses and princes and fairies and swans. And it was really everything that I was doing at home as a little girl in the privacy of my own bedroom was basically playing dress up and make believe and using my imagination to tell a story. So I thought, oh my gosh, I would love to do this as my job. This sounds like the ideal profession. And so when I was eight years old, I told my parents, this is what I want to do with my life. And they were quite taken aback because you know, to them, they said, we don't, you know, people don't even know what they want to do when they graduate college. So how is it that my eight-year-old has decided her career path already? And honestly, they tried everything they could to um, make sure that I was really making the right decision. They put me into tennis, soccer, piano, um, everything, you know, under the sun. And I just kept coming back to ballet um, so I started training professionally when I was eight years old and then, um, slowly, but surely, you know, I was commuting back and forth into the city. And then, uh, when it seemed that it would be a wise decision to join the school at American Ballet Theater, um, at the age of 12, my parents and I took an apartment in New York city, a one bedroom, just as a trial year. And I have a funny story about this. I always kind of laugh about, you know, when I tell it, um, I just remember saying to my parents, you know, mom and dad, like, I know that you'll probably want to stay up late and you, dad, you like to get your midnight snacks and you might be watching TV and I really, really need my rest. And, um, you know, I'm going to have school and dance and everything else. So I think, you know, don't you think I should stay in the main bedroom in the master bedroom? And they were like, you know, you're not wrong. Um, and so for a year, 
I lived in the master bedroom. That was my room. And my parents had their bed in the living room, which doubled as the couch. And we lived like that for a year until they realized that this was, was a good fit for me to join American Ballet Theater's Jack and Canito NASA school. And to me, um, it was really important to be able to start to grow up within the institution simply because I knew this was the place that I wanted to end up. So I wanted for the staff um, to start to get to know me, even from a young age, and to feel like they could sculpt me and shape me into the ballet dancer that I am today. It's kind of like putting that stamp of approval um, on on the artistic side of, of a dancer. Um, and that's why I was so keen on starting with ABT from such a young age. That's amazing. Uh, the story about the apartment is great. I think you should, you should, you should continue that forever. Um, I was so sneaky. Uh, it was so sneaky, <laughs> but so clever. Uh, two things that came up in there is just that part. The first thing I wanted to bring up was like, you brought up your family. What's it like to have the support of your family and for them to encourage like this creativity in you? Like they said, like we talk, there's a thing about athletes where they always encourage people to like try other things and see how they feel. And, and then they find once you, once you settle on that one thing to kind of have that strike that balance. But it seems like one thing that you always talk about per, outside of this, but normally it's like your the strength of your family and their support for you. Like, you have two sisters and they are both incredibly creative in their own right. And your parents, like you said, they, they decide to get a one-bedroom apartment. Like that's a big financial commitment. It's like encourage this for you. So like, what's it like to have their support when you do all this? Something that I, I actually really feel that is so important to speak about because I know, you know, I know people don't choose their families and I know just how lucky I am to have the family that I do have. Um, you know, the fact that they were able to support me emotionally and mentally is, is enormous. You know, not everyone supports their kids and their endeavors. And I think it's been the same for, for me and, and my sisters, whatever we wanted to do, as long as we were passionate about it, our parents were hundred percent, you know, behind us, um, in pursuing our dreams, which is why, um, you know, my oldest sister, Alexis, she became, she reached the height of the hip hop career. Um, she danced for the Knicks basketball team. Um, so she made it completely in hip hop. Um, my sister Taylor, who's an incredible photographer, um, has done so much work and, and art in that way. And again, all thanks to the support of my parents. And I think I also understood from a very young age, how lucky I was to have the resources that I did have. Um, the fact that, as you say, my parents were able to make that commitment and move into the city with me. The fact that they were able to provide me with the training I needed, the private coaching, the massages, the schooling, I mean, everything under the sun. I knew that that was um, a privilege. I knew that was a luxury. Um, I knew that was rare. And so for all of those reasons, um, the way that my, you know, my parents brought us up to have these wonderful values, I made sure not to squander a single, a single resource that I made sure to make the most of every, um, every resource that I had, because I knew how lucky I was to have it. We talk about sometimes where it's very difficult and you got, and like I said, you were very lucky to what happened. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And as we kind of talk about like your choice to make that commitment, like you said, like get in front of the, the teachers and the choreographers at American Ballet Theater, like what was it like to go from the school itself to that next step? Because like you, we, we brought up in, in our introduction, you were promoted, I want to forget the terminology, right? Several times. So what was it like to go from the school to that next step? 
and then to the studio company. Yes. So um, just what you said about the studio company, once you basically finish your training in the school, the top tier of the school, um, the hope is that you would be invited to join American Ballet Theater's junior company, which is essentially a theater company for the main company. Um, the junior company at the time that I was in it, it was called ABT2. Now it's called ABT Studio Company, um, but it usually consists of about 12 dancers, six, six boys and six girls. And um, you stay in that company for about two years with the hopes of being invited to join the main company as an apprentice. Um, and the main company consists of about 90 dancers. So it's a quite a, a, quite a, a jump. Um, when I went from the school into the into ABT2, into the junior company, it was definitely a shock for me just because now I had entered the workforce. Um, we were really treated as professionals, really treated as adults. We were touring all over the world um, and we were really became very responsible for ourselves, which is, I think, the, the largest difference between being in a school and being in a company. Um, you know, in school, in ballet school, you have your teacher on you at all times, making sure you're doing your work, doing everything properly. And the minute that you enter professional level, um, the responsibility really falls on the individual to do the work, to put in, you know, the effort because in a ballet company, there's just simply not enough time to make sure that everyone's being, you know, doing what they need to do. So the hope is that the dancer themselves takes the initiative to continue to grow and learn and thrive. Um, and so for me, you know, I went from, again, being in a school to now joining when I joined ABT um, main company at 17 years old. Uh, I was, you know, my friends were in their 30s and 40s with maybe two or three three kids at that point. Um, it was a really different environment. Everyone was super welcoming, which was something that ABT is known for is for their environment. Um, we're very much like a family for each other. And I think because ABT is such an international company, there are people from Brazil, China, Japan, France, Spain, all over the world, Australia, and a lot of these people moved at a very young age just to be able to join such a prestigious company as ABT. Um, they left their families and their friends behind. So we're, we're very much serve as a support system for each other. And um, making that transition was was easier because of that general camaraderie between the dancers. I, I can see that in the way you talk about them. And like you said, you went from to being the studio company, which at times was called ABT2, and then you became an apprentice in the main company. So you really, you hit the main stage, so to speak. And then you joined the core in 2011. So that was like when, when, when we met for the first time, you remember the core and, and you had to explain to me what it was like, like, what does that mean? So for our audience, explain to me what, it, what, what, if they were to see a performance, where would they see a member of the core de ballet? Like, where would they see them on stage and what role would they have? Ballet company like ABT, um, ABT only has three, well, four ranks if you count apprentices. But beyond that, um, there is the corps de ballet, which are the dancers that do most of the group work. Um, they're really sort of the backbone of a production. Um, if you go to see Swan Lake, they would be the 24, you know, flock of swans. Um, if you were to see let's say the Sleeping Beauty would be the villagers in the scene um, or the fairy nymphs or something like this. So it's it's 
the corps de ballet basically consists of more of the group dances. Um, from there, you progress to soloist. And soloists um, are basically do exactly what their namesake says, which is to perform solos and supporting roles in, in the production. And then principal dancers, which is the top tier hierarchy of the, um, of the company, uh, they will do the leading roles of the ballet, which means if you were to go to see Cinderella, the principal dancer would be playing Cinderella. If you were to see uh, Swan Lake, the principal dancer would be the Swan Queen Odette Odile. Um, so that's an even more specialized um, role. But that being said, even at, you know, as a corps de ballet member, I was, as I kind of mentioned before, and as you brought up, um, I was able to perform a principal role even as a corps de ballet member. So in your experience in the company, um, the artistic director will give you featured roles to test you and see how well you might be able to progress to the next level. That's a great segue into our next topic because the talk about like developing those skills and the like those strengths and everything, because as we was we traditionally talk about an athlete about what's like for them to like grow up into baseball. It's like, so you have grown up in ballet. So when, when you are starting to transition between these different um, roles and promotions, how does your training and your development change? What do you start noticing about like, what, what do you have to work on? What do you have to kind of pull back on to kind of really um, succeed? And then, like you said, you're responsible for your own coaches at that point, which I, I think is incredible. It's like, I'm a teenager and I have to go pick people to go help me learn certain things. It's like, what's that process? Like, cause like talk, start talking about like your development process, like you said, cause otherwise you couldn't have achieved all the success that you've had. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, when you first join a big ballet company as an apprentice, and then you are doing more, um, in the court of ballet, there's a huge amount of responsibility. Um, especially for someone like me, I'm five foot three. So that meant that I was always in the front line and I was always leading the line of a bunch of ladies, a really uh, special role to have in the corps de ballet. Um, again, it falls to the shorter dancers and um, it just so happened that I was the correct height, but also um, had the brain to be able to handle that kind of leadership. Um, it's interesting when you do join a large company and you are 17 and you're the least senior person in the whole ballet company, but yet you're the line leader. So, you know, it's really, it's a lot of pressure to do that, but again, it's, it's, um, it's a big honor to be in that position. So I think for those first formative years in the company, you're really focusing on being a good leader, um, being able to, to dance, you know, in a line of people, keep formations. And then slowly but surely, when you start to get off, offered more opportunities, it was a very challenging point in my career because I was not only responsible for doing my own corps de ballet work, but now I was also doing solos work and also, also principal work. And on top of it, I was filling in for people's injuries. So I was pretty much doing the job of four people at once and with eight performances per week. And you know, four acts a night. Um, I was at a absolutely at a breaking point at my, you know, mental, emotional, physical wits end. Um, and you know, it was the, the very last year before I got promoted to soloist, I was struggling to keep it together because the thing is, if you go to the company and say, listen, I'm, I feel like I'm drowning and I'm unable to do all this work, then they would sooner take away 
those chances, those opportunities to do solace and principal work and make sure that you're okay to do your core to ballet work. So there's really not a lot of room to complain, if you will, or speak up. So I was really trying to do my best in all of my roles within the company. But, you know, I think I um, took a very particular approach to my career because I wanted the top of the top in my profession. I made it a point to go out and get privately coached, as you say, you know, find my own trainers as a, even as a teenager. Um, and that's not really typical, actually. Um, again, ABT provides coaching, they provide teachers, but because again, it's a company of 90 dancers and usually we're very pressed for time and time is money and X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, for me, I wanted more for myself. I'm the kind of person who likes to focus on details up until where my eyelash is placed. So for that, it requires more than the amount of rehearsal that ABT could give me or any other dancer, which is why I took it upon myself to um, rent my own studios hire my own coaches and actually work on repertoire on my own, on my days off. Um, and that takes obviously an enormous amount of motivation and, and drive, but I found that it was, um, the payoff was huge. Um, especially because in a ballet company, you often, the way you get your opportunities, uh, for a lot of people is by filling in for injuries. And so the fact that I could be prepared ahead of time in my own way, it was, Again, it was my own initiative to, to do so. Um, it set me up well for those uh, very last minute uh, chances that I ended up getting. I want to go back to this point about like you have to capitalize when other people, unfortunately, are suffering. How, how, do you, how do you handle that? It's like, like you say, it's a family and you watch the performer who's going to be the feature, the principal role, the soloist role, and they have an injury and you have to take their spot. It's like, how do you wrestle with that? Because it's like you are potentially succeeding at their expense. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's pretty much exactly that. And and that's what's tough. It's it's such a normal part of um, of ballet. You know, people are getting hurt left and right. And, you know, therefore, opportunities are born. Um, that being said, after years of filling in for people, I went to my director and I said, look, I'm so honored that you think of me for these opportunities because not everyone can jump into a role. I mean, the amount of times I've learned a whole three act ballet without ever even working on it. Um, you know, it's literally the kind of thing where you take a video home and I'm learning it at night and performing it three days later you know, that takes, that's a huge amount of pressure that takes a certain kind of um, learner. Uh, you know, it's funny. I have, you could ask any one of my friends, I have the most horrible memory, but I am the most brilliant at picking up choreography. So that's a special skill that I have, which I wish translated to normal everyday life. You know, I would love to be able to remember basic things, but for me, for some reason, it's, it's ballet steps. I'm really good at picking up at picking up choreography. And usually I'm able to deliver on top of that, um, which is why my director would often call upon me to fill in very last minute for a role that I'd never even learned before. And I would go out on stage and do it. But at a certain point, you know, I had a conversation with him where I said, look, you know, I, I really don't want to, I don't want to build my career based off of my own friend's injuries. Um, I don't want to 
hope for anyone to get hurt. That's not the way I want to continue to um, ascend. And so for me, it was important to be able to voice that I didn't want to just be the person who would be called upon in an emergency, but that I would be thought of ahead of time and have my own performance on the schedule, a date with my name there and not, again, not relying on people's, other people's misfortunes to achieve my own dreams. And so that was a large conversation that I ended up having with my director to sort of voice, voice that concern. That's amazing. Uh, We'll revisit this topic later on because to our audience, well, I'll give a little bit of a, a quote unquote foreshadowing slash tease. There's one incredible performance of yours that I want to go back to that had like all these elements in it. Like you had the name on the bill. You also filled in for somebody. And it was just like the circumstances around were just as your friend and as a fan of your work, were just incredible to watch you soar in this moment. So we'll, we'll get back to that later on. But I want to also talk about you. We talk about family and trust. It's like often when you are performing, you're performing with another person. How do you establish that partnership? Like in a lot of your videos that you share online, you are working with a male partner. It may not be the same male partner all the time, but you're like, you're entrusting them to, I think of the, the true adage of like dance and cheer, particularly like you have to lift someone up and you are entrusting a person to put you in the air and to bring you down safely. And it's like a trust fall and, and like a team building activity, but like it's a single person and another single person. And you are the person 20, like 10 feet off the ground now. So what is, how do you establish that relationship with someone? So like you can lift me in the air and I'll be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, and I, I think I, I get even more of that than other people because whenever a choreographer comes in, they see me and they see my frame and they see my height and my stature. They're like, you're the one that's going to be thrown around in the air. And I'm like, that's always how I end up. That's my job. Um, and you know, I think when you, when you reach a certain level, such as, you know, dancing at American Ballet theater, you know, that inherently, um, everyone is going to be a coordinated, strong, responsible counterpart partner. That said, have I been dropped before? Absolutely. Um, but I think that, you know, the thing that makes partnerships work um, are a couple of things. First of all, communication, which to me, I always think it's so important to be able to communicate well with, with, your, with your dance partner. Um, you need to be able to express yourself, express what you need um, from them to make you feel more comfortable, make the movement safer, um, to make the chemistry better, even, you know, that's also a huge part of dance partnership. Um, but also I think that, you know, it's, it's kind of like an old fashioned, um, feeling that it's always the guy's fault. That's sort of how, how it is in ballet culture. And whenever I speak to, you know, younger people, the next generation, I always try to tell the young ladies that we have to be strong enough to be lifted and to be part of the partnership. It's, it's, it's a two way street. And so I think it's so important, you know, for the females to take responsibility for themselves, because there's a way to make your partner's life easier and to make the whole, uh, choreography or dance or whatever is being thrown at you safer and, um, and better. And again, that takes two people. And I think that usually the men, you know, they, they're taught to take the blame, but I always tell the females, 
you should also ask your partners, what can I do differently to make your life easier? And I think that that's really important for ballet partnerships, especially. That's pretty interesting that like you bring up the whole partnership part, like in baseball, it's the whole, you know, chemistry between the pitcher and the catcher and having that relationship and communication. So like if one partner fails, like you feel like you feel that partner just because you didn't do the right thing. And I just feel the same way. And I also wanted to kind of joke around that in baseball, there's like these bigger athletes and they prefer like a six foot six, like an Aaron Judge, like for instance, they prefer those type of frame. But in ballet, it's a total opposite. So that's kind of interesting. Um, what I wanted to bring up was, um, so I come from the world of film and, you know, was acting. There's so many different like schools, right? Like the Meisner School, Strasbourg. So I was wondering in, in the world of dance, do you have to like master all these different type of techniques as well? Yes, definitely. Um, especially at a company like ABT, we don't only do large classical ballets that, you know, they're known for, but we also do contemporary works, modern works. Sometimes we do tap works. Um, and, you know, it's important as a professional ballet dancer to be as versatile as possible. So usually, you know, we grow up with that kind of training. When I was in the JKO school, we studied different forms of modern technique. We studied, studied Horton, we studied Lamone, um, you know, we also studied character dance and all of this comes back later in life. So, you know, it's very important to grab onto those things, um, you know, jazz, lyrical, what have you. I personally have a, a big love for hip hop. I think also growing up around my sister, it's just something that I've always loved. I try to take hip hop classes as much as I can. And when I'm not feeling too exhausted, not that I'm any good at it, but for me, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a great departure from ballet technique, but it's all very important to contributing to the all around picture. Well, on this note, there's a couple interesting topics that come up frequently around developing athletes. The first is in sports, there is this continuous dialogue about you should never particularly focus on a single sport as, an, as a young athlete because you're more prone to injuries if you always train the same groups of muscles to always do that. So from that perspective, how, is, how important is it for you to learn all these different types of dance? Because like you said, it works different parts of your mind and your body to be like, okay, I have to move this way. I can move that way. I have to work with like other people in the room. I don't work with other people in the room. Like how does that really flex your mind and your body to say like, okay, like I am doing this to really, like I said, prepare myself for what's to come. Yes. Um, I think for some reason with ballet, especially, it's so important to focus mostly on that. I think because it is so highly specialized, um, it's such a highly specialized sport slash art form, um, that most of the attention goes on ballet technique, even for dancers who are not professional ballet dancers, people who are in, you know, on Broadway, people who are in modern companies, contemporary companies, they have a large focus on ballet because ballet technique in general really sets you up for everything else. I think it's like the thing that makes you strongest. And it's why actually football players, soccer players, tennis players, people do ballet as a form of cross training because it's kind of that all encompassing um, training for the body, for the mind. But that said, it is important to continue to exercise in other ways. I think ballet also, it forms your muscles in a very particular way in a long like very, there's so much strength there, but it's also the muscles are very lean. And so it's important to be able to capture that shape from a young age. 
um, and sort of train the muscles in that way so that the aesthetic is there because ballet is a visual art form. There, there are certain rules and, and expectations when you, when you go and see a ballet um, that have to be there. But, you know, as, as a current professional ballet dancer, I definitely do things outside of ballet to cross train. I like to do Pilates. I like to um, do gyrotonics. People go to the gym, people swim, you know, everyone has their own formula that works best for them, their own equation. Um, but it is, as you say, really important to strengthen all of the surrounding muscles on top of the ones that we use day to day in order to prevent injury and that sort of thing. It's interesting. You bring up the football aspect. I, I remember as a young Learning about football as a young child, hearing about punters who go ballet because they have to get their foot to their their leg to arc a certain way so they can punt the ball with a certain trajectory. And I just couldn't understand that. And then I watched a punter like, and then I watched you. I was like, they can make an L. It's like you make a literal L with your with your leg and your plant leg and your and your kicking leg. I'm like, that's incredible. I was like, to watch that that form like develop is just in anyone, male, female, is just incredible. I will want to go back to this whole thing about exercise and about the, about, and like I said, training yourself for the aesthetic and the equipment they use. Because one of the things about ballet hallmark is you dance on point, which means your feet, I know how to like visually explain this. Like you can, it looks like you are standing like a flamingo from that, back of what I can think about. It's like you are standing straight up on your toes. It's like, how do you like tolerate that? I tolerate, I say loosely because it, it seems painful from the outsider's perspective. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, going on point, I think for any aspiring ballerina is one of the most exciting moments of your entire life. Um, I remember when I went on point, I was nine and a half years old. Um, at this point, I'd only been training for a year and a half in a very serious way. And I remember going to get my first pair of point shoes. I went to the Capizio store on 51st street and I walked in and the woman there who was the point shoe fitter, um, took one look at me. And at that time, I mean, I was nine and a half, but I probably looked like I was six, you know, and she looked at, she took one look at me and she said, well, I hope you're not here for point shoes. And I was like, actually, you know, my mom was like, actually she is. Um, and she said, well, I don't like, I don't think we're going to have anything in your size. Um, but she had, she was like, but let me look. She went into the back of the store. She opened a special door that led into like shelves and shelves of point shoes. And she grabbed one pair off the top of the shelf that were bubblegum pink. I'll never forget it. And I tried them on. They fit perfectly. And apparently a young girl had ordered them three years earlier and special ordered them, custom ordered them to for her size and never picked them up. And so alas, I went home with my first pair of point juice, um, thankfully, because this this person never picked up her order. And the rest was the rest was history. But um, you know, dancing on point requires an enormous amount of strength in the ankles, in the feet, in the calves, the whole body, as you say, but your entire weight is on your toes. So everything has to be working um, in such a way to make you feel ultimately weightless, even despite this practice. And um, it obviously takes just an enormous amount of, of time to build that strength and to build that comfort on point. And everyone has something different that they do to their, to their shoe, um, you know, 
different kinds of padding, different kinds of way to tape the toes, um, different kinds of way to break the shoe in. Um, so it's, it's very personal to each, to each ballet dancer, ballerina, male or female. Um, because some, you know, there are men that wear point shoes as well. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really a lot of fun once you kind of get used to it. And I never feel any pain on my feet ever (laughs) anymore. And I think that's just attributed to 20 years of standing on my toes. <laughs> that, that's incredible. Uh, and I want to mention this aesthetic and the, the, the audience perspective. Professional athletes perform in front of an audience. I think of like, we talk about baseball, baseball stadiums are about 30 to 50,000. Lincoln Center is about a couple thousand people into the tiers of all things, but you've worn other, other places, obviously. What's it like when you, how do you get adjusted to the fact that you are dancing in front of an audience, like you are standing in front of all these people and you, you could be all alone up there at certain times, or it could be with a group of people. So how do you kind of mentally get ready for the fact that's like, there's an audience in front of me? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the thing is, um, whether you're dancing at the Met, which is maybe 4,000 people, or I once performed, um, in Italy at the arena de Verona, which was 20,000 people. Um, you know, it's, Obviously you have, some people have deal with nerves differently. I think nerves are super normal and natural, especially given the nature of what we do. Um, but for me, what I, when I feel most comfortable is when I feel most prepared to go on stage. Um, when I really put in the work, um, in rehearsal and I get myself to a point of feeling confident enough to actually go on stage and let go of everything, it's actually a super, um, beautiful feeling. It's, it's transcendent, um, simply because you are just living in the moment and living in a character. I think there's a lot to be said for the other elements around you that help with performing in front of large groups of people. Um, for me, I know that when I go on stage and I'm performing specific characters, I no longer feel like myself. I feel like someone else due to the art form, you have to be able to tell a story and embody certain characters. So that's kind of already feels like a departure from normal life and, and helps to get you in a certain headspace that makes it so that you're not focusing on what the task literally is, but you're just living and breathing a, a character, be it a swan, a princess, a fairy, a normal human being, but a human being that's not yourself. Um, I think that music is amazing. You know, um, when you have a live orchestra, which is again, a luxury to be able to have at, at American Ballet Theater, Um, that's such a driving force that kind of helps give you that extra bit of adrenaline as well. Um, having your peers around you, uh, supporting you and, and in the same position is, is, is also extremely helpful. Um, but you know, I, people always ask me like, how do you deal with nerves? I think it's, it's a big thing for younger, for younger people, because that's the time that you have the least amount of experience as opposed to when you continue to, to perform, then you get more and more comfortable with that aspect of being on stage. And I always like to tell people, you know, nerves are natural. Um, nerves can be helpful if you don't push them away and, and get freaked out by them. Nerves give you adrenaline. They make you hyper-focused. Um, you know, they, they do things for you, uh, that can be beneficial. And so it's like understanding and knowing 
already off the bat that you might get nervous, that it's a natural feeling to have, and that um, it's it can be helpful already takes a huge weight off of the performer just to be able to accept and acknowledge the fact that nerves are nerves are there, nerves are are to be expected. That's an amazing description. Like I said, like I sat in the fourth tier of Lincoln Center and saw you perform twice. Uh, and it was just, like I guess it looked effortless to watch you perform. I remember the first time I saw you perform, you were on stage in a performance alongside Misty Copeland. You were a solo at the time with Misty Copeland and one side of you and Devin Tushar, our mutual friend on the other side of you. And I looked at that and I just, it felt like I was watching like the three, the three queens of ballet. It was just like, how do you, how do you make sure you don't step on the people's toes? How do you, how do you not like, like the fact you're standing alongside your peers who are, who have gone through this entire process, mostly with you and the orchestra is right below you. And we'll talk about all these elements in a couple of minutes about like the past, because let's say the past year and a half or so have been absolutely transcendent for you. Like I said, as someone as watching you and everything. So we'll get it. We'll start getting into all of that right now. So let's start with one of the things you did completely off the stage, but one of the luxuries you can because of the, your career is you participated in a, perf, a program with Harvard Business School, like as part of like an education program. Like, could you walk us through that and like what that meant for you and like how that has helped you? Well, it's this amazing program that Harvard Business School has. It's called um, Harvard Crossover into Business. And it's a program that specializes um, in, you know, giving this opportunity uh, to athletes in particular. Um, it's geared towards allowing athletes to be able to learn more about business, whether they're making a transition in their careers. You know, you have a lot of athletes that are on the verge of retirement that like to 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 do this program. Um, but essentially what you do is you are paired, um, the athlete is paired with uh, two MBA students that take you through your studies. Um, you do case studies and ultimately you, um, you finish by giving a final presentation for the Harvard professor um, and you I guess, graduate from that, that program. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think in, especially, you know, in today's day and age, everyone who is either an entertainer or an athlete or what have you is also a business person because the way social media works these days, um, the way brand partnerships go, um, sponsorships, everything else, uh, you have to have some sort of knowledge or, or insight as to how those things work. So for me, it was incredible to, incredible to be able to do these case studies with my Harvard um, mentors and kind of delve into the finer details of being able to be a business person on top of being able to be a ballerina because both go hand in hand at this point. Um, so it was, I felt very fortunate to be a part of the program. Um, you know, it was it was funny because I don't personally, I, the only sport I watch really is, is tennis. Um, I'm a big, big tennis fan. Otherwise I couldn't tell you the name of a single other athlete, but for me, it was, you know, I was starstruck to be sitting right next to Victoria Azarenka. Um, and I was like, Oh my God, you know, I don't know any of these other people, but I'm a big fan of yours and I've watched you on TV and I've go to the U S open every year. And so, you know, that was such a cool fangirl moment for me. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a really, a very cool thing that Harvard 
offers to, to people. And, and I think it's, it's smart on their end as well. You know, it's, we, we actually went to Harvard. Um, there was like an orientation weekend. Um, we went to the campus, we did some in-person case studies. We observed some of the MBA classes and there was a photographer, there was a, you know, and, and so you know, I can see how it's also good for Harvard to be able to say, Hey, we, you know, we had so-and-so going through our program. So it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, good exposure for them and a really wonderful opportunity for us athletes. Yeah. Casual, you know, elite, elite, elite dancer in American Ballet Theater next to a Grand Slam winner in tennis, you know, senior favorite in class, take a picture. That's a great moment. Uh, and We'll, we'll go we'll go in chronological order. Uh, but one of the things that we really wanted to talk about today was what happened last year in February 2020, your performance at the at the Kennedy Center, in Washington, D.C. And if you could walk us through the story of what happened, I remember I wrote down the date because it was it, it just sounded it just sounded great to write it down February 13th, 2020, when you performed on stage at the Kennedy Center in the role of Giselle. It's like. So this story, just for our audience, well, I'll give you a little bit of spoiler. This performance was written about previously in the New York Times and then afterwards in the Washington Post, just because of how unique it was. So if you could walk us through what happened leading up to that day in that day, and then we'll, we'll go to some similarities with sports because luckily there's some similarities in sports we can kind of relate to with this. Yeah, absolutely. I So... Um... Every year, um, I, I we we have a two month season at the Metropolitan Opera House in the spring, and it's our most grueling season um, and also the most rewarding. But um, you know, I had been in ABT company for you know ten years at that point, and I'd filled in for various large roles, ballets, and you know was so happy to do all of that. And as I mentioned before, I decided. Um, that I would have a meeting with my director, which I had been doing every year for the, you know, previous several years. Um, and whereas I would normally go to him and say, look, we're about to go on a nine week layoff. What can I learn? What might I perform next year? Cause again, this is me taking my career into my own hands and trying to be prepared in case an injury were to happen. And I would be called upon to fill in for a, a, a major leading role. And, um, that particular year I said, I had a little bit of a different question instead of saying, what might I perform next year? It was what will I perform next year? Because at that point I felt like I was in a position where I really deserved again, to have my name on the schedule ahead of time, as opposed to just waiting for an injury to happen, which would have been very likely but I wanted to know that I had a secured performance. And my director said to me, well, you know, learn everything because again, chances were I would be called upon to do anything and everything. But he said, you know, I think you should, you should focus on Giselle, this role of Giselle. So I got really excited and I went away for the summer. I worked tirelessly with my coaches, you know, three hours per day. Um, and again, it's, 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 difficult to do this, you know, more so than, than people imagine. It's like, while my friends were maybe on beach vacations and visiting their friends and family, I'm still slaving away in the studios, um, after our hardest season of the whole year. And we come back in, in September for our fall season. 
And I decided, you know what, I'm going to check in with my director and see, see what's up, see, see what the status is on our, on my performance of Giselle. And when I met with him, he said that it didn't seem like a possibility anymore. And I was kind of like, well, that really sucks. Cause I just spent nine weeks working on this role that you told me to focus on. And whereas I might have normally, um, gone away and said, you know, okay, well maybe next time I thought, no, I need to be my own self, best self advocate, which is very, um, unlike me. It's, it's unlike my personality to be a squeaky wheel. I'm the kind of person who likes to put in the work and let the work speak for itself. And hopefully, you know, if you put in the work, you, you perform well, you know, two plus two equals four, but I very quickly, you know, came to realize that as in any profession, that's not always the, not always going to be the case. There are all kinds of other factors that go into decision-making and there are all kinds of politics. And sometimes you need to be a little more assertive in order to fully express the, the gravity of how important it would be for me to perform this role. So I sort of, in a very nice way, um, but in a firm way, try to stick up for myself and say, look, this is really important for me to be able to do this. And thankfully, um, my director was able to come back to me and say, okay, you're going to do this performance in February at the Kennedy Center. So I was like, great, this is awesome. This is so exciting. And I continued to work on the role um, all leading up until that point. And then funnily enough, um, and, you know, I had gone to, New York, to the New York Times, had this article expressed, um, you know, what my journey was like up until this point, basically saying everything that I, that I just told you. Um, and then sure enough, I mean, I had a Sunday, I had the very last performance of the week, um, which was the Sunday matinee performance. And sure enough, um, basically on Thursday, uh, my direct, you know, the director came up to me and said, look, you know, you're, you're going to have to fill in for, um, for injury, uh, this person, the, the female lead who was going to play Giselle, um, got hurt. And can you jump in tonight, um, with a brand new partner with whom I'd never danced this role before. And of course I was like, yeah, let's do it. But I thought it was so funny to me that here it was, I fought for my own performance of Giselle. And yet I still made my debut early by filling in for injury, which is just very much like me and my career and the, the way that things have gone. But I was ready. I was prepared. I had prepared with a different partner. Thankfully, I was dancing alongside Armand Cornejo, who's, you know, a masterful dancer, one of the best in the world. And I felt very comfortable and confident in his arms. Speaking of trust, you know, we, we had an hour that day to go over some things. I mean, even choreography differs from cast to cast. And so I, we had to learn each other's versions of the same ballet. Um, and I, you know, and it was, it was interesting too, because the person I was filling in for was Misty Copeland, who's obviously a very famous, um, ballerina of our generation. And she sells out the house. People love to see her. And here it is. It's like going to be very disappointing for the audience not to see Misty Copeland. Instead, they're seeing someone who, you know, they may have never heard of before, but I was so, you know, it was so um, spontaneous. It really added a, an extra element to the performance that um, 
was very special. And I ended up, you know, I went from having zero performances to finally getting a coveted one performance to now doing two, which was more than any of the other leading principal dancers that whole week, um, which was just, again, so ironic to me and, and so cool. Yeah. Exactly. The story is great. I will we'll post links to the articles in the New York Times that Scott mentioned and the Washington Post article came afterwards. The other element that the Washington Post article mentioned, which I thought was a great strike of luck, was the conductor that night was the same conductor you had worked with, which was a great benefit to you. Um, and the reason why we want to bring this up is because in the last year, there have been two very notable, at least that we can recall in sports where something happens and you got to, you got to come up and you got to really deliver, uh, at the opening day of 2020 in the baseball season, Clayton Kershaw, who is Kazuki, you can defend this if I'm wrong, probably the best pitcher in baseball right now. Like he's probably one of the top three pitchers in baseball. We'll go in the hall of fame. Easy is injured four hours before he's supposed to start. And they call up a rookie who has literally never played this role before is the opening day starter. He goes in there and pitches a one run game alongside four other pitchers with the Dodgers. And they beat the San Francisco Giants on opening night of the craziest season in baseball that we know of so far. So you think about that, just imagine that. And then they, and they won the world series, same idea. And then in this past week in hockey, um, team is not that great. The Ottawa senators, but their goaltender is a Stanley cup winning goaltender. He's won the world championship several times. He gets injured in warmups. They then call on their backup who has played maybe a couple of games, not a whole lot of games. His name is Joey Decord. And Joey Decord's story is very interesting. He kind of like, he said, guy, how are you going to come up there? He was the first player ever from his university to sign a pro contract in NHL. The pro, the team that he played university hockey with was maybe five years old. So he was brand new to like big time hockey at the time. He comes up there. Goes to Ottawa. He's playing against the Toronto Maple Leafs, like the biggest name in hockey, and he sh and he plays again and wins the game on two like two minutes notice. Like comes in there, shuts them down, plays the best game of his life, gets his first NHL win. In this interview on Canadian television, you can look up on Twitter. He's like, I just felt like I was ready. Like everything was like I don't care. It's like I had to go in there and I had to do what Matt Murray, the injured goalie. It's like I had to get in there and play the game. And I think about that when you go in for Misty Copeland. It's like Misty Copeland's going to pack the house. Like you're going to walk in there and see all these murmurs. Like, why is Misty not on stage? Like everyone sees in their programs, but sure. It's like everyone wants to go see Clayton Kershaw. Everyone wants to go see Matt Murray play. And it's not them. It's this other person. And frankly, it's like, like who are you mentality? And, and like I said, that's kind of like the start of life. The beauty, like 2020 was a, was a terrible, terrible year for the performing arts. But for you, this was like, like the zenith. And then it, and it, and it kept getting bigger because throughout 2020, um, in September, as we mentioned earlier, you received the great honor of becoming a principal in American Ballet Theater. So what was it like to go from that moment in February to September about, and throughout that time, you've been doing virtual lessons, masterclasses over the, over virtual masterclasses with it seems like thousands of people online. You've been, I've seen your dances on like on different social media apps. Like you've just like, you found a way to like entertain the audience and like, like you're performing without the crowd in front of you. And then you receive this notification, this recognition in September. So what was it like when that happened? Yeah. I mean, it was a really, it was really a wild year. I mean, for everyone, but here it was that I had just come off of this huge milestone for me 
debuting Giselle, having two performances of it, of it, no less, um, and having really, you know, wonderful, positive feedback. And at the time, ABT was, was meant to go on several more domestic tours. And then we were about to open our two-month season at, at Lincoln Center at the Metropolitan Opera House. And we had heard about, you know, Corona. And at the time, I was preparing to make another very big debut. I was going to play Princess Aurora in The Sleeping Beauty. So it was like here I was building up all this momentum. And I thought this is going to be a really important year for me, really pivotal. Um, you know, I feel like maybe this is my year to, to make that final step up to principal dancer. I didn't know, but I was had a strong feeling about it. And so when everything kind of stopped, um, you know, it was, it was pretty shocking because it was, we first heard, oh, this particular tour just got canceled. And then it was like, oh, all the tours got canceled and guys, you know, maybe you pick up your stuff and, and we'll see you when we see you. And I think all of us were in the locker rooms, like gathering our things, kind of half giggling, half like, yeah, you know, okay, I guess we'll see you in a few weeks. Now it's a year later, we still haven't returned to work. So I don't think any one of us anticipated the gravity of this, of this virus. Um, but I was really, you know, like all other performing artists, I was really devastated because again, I felt like I was at a really important moment in my career and then it all stopped. Um, and I didn't have any certainty as to when we would be back on track. And unlike other professions, ballet is, you're not going to get that year back. You know, ballet is a, is a young person's profession. Um, and you can't just, you know, because you lost a year here, you can't just continue dancing into your late forties and fifties. It doesn't work like that. So it was really extra, um, impactful, you know, thinking that like I lost an, a year of my life in my career. And so, you know, I think, I was, I was pretty upset by that fact, but as soon as I was able to kind of accept, um, the pandemic and the quarantine for what it was and kind of switch my attitude, not dissimilar to being injured where it's like, Hey, if the injury happens to you and you have to put in the time to heal anyway, you might as well enjoy it and make the most of it. I kind of adopted that mentality for the, for the pandemic as well, and tried to immerse myself in a lot of other things. Um, that made me happy and made me feel like I was continuing to grow. Um, but when, when the promotion happened, I mean, I was not expecting it at all. I didn't think that American Ballet Theater was in a financial or political state to be making a, to be doing promotions. I didn't even think that would be on the table. So it came as an enormous surprise to me. Um, and I think to my colleagues when, when my director announced promotions, because again, it was like, we weren't returning in any foreseeable future. And also the, you know, the status of the company was not, is, was not good. Like for most, for most organizations, most companies. So I was really, really taken aback, <laughs> really pleasantly surprised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the promotions were just an amazing moment in for the, for the whole company. Cause it was so unexpected. And I remember I, I got an email and I was like, I was surprised as you. I was like, I got an email and I, I was like, I, I get like the, like the, the updates about the season being changed and everything. And then after this amazing moment, I started seeing that there was the quote unquote ballet bubble was being established. 
and ballet in a bubble where several performers, several dancers went off to a, a, a venue, I think in upstate New York and started performing like routines. And then it was slowly trickling out that several, and then they came back. And then you told me that you went there. So what was it like, like just like the NBA, major league baseball, NA to hockey, tennis, everyone's been in playing, every athlete's been in the bubble. Like what was it like? performing in a bubble or training in a bubble? Yeah, it was, you know, I think this is ABT's way to continue to push the art form forward in a safe um, environment. And basically what these ballet bubbles um, entailed um, is just taking a group of dancers uh, that sequester together in, in one place. In my case, we went to um, to Lake George and we spent five weeks there. The first two weeks we were just considered a ramp up period and we had to keep our masks on. We got tested weekly, um, you know, both before leaving for the bubble, but also when we arrived to make sure that everyone was, was Corona free. And then after that two week period of, of quarantine at the bubble, then we took our masks off and we started to create a brand new work with our resident choreographer, Alexi Ratmanski, um, that we knew was going to be filmed at the end of this whole process. And it was, I have to say, you know, I had reservations at first because being in a bubble means you can't go outside of the bubble. You can't leave the premises. You can't have contact with any other people. Um, you're basically really confined. And I was worried because five weeks is a very long time to invest um, in in one project. And again, to to move to a different place, not have the comforts of being at home. You know, we go on tour all the time, but you're in and out of a hotel, you're in a theater, you're, it would be like just, you know, going on vacation. And in this case, we were really um, isolated and spending time with the same people day after day. But it was so, it was so special. It was such a special moment in, in time because first of all, I hadn't seen a lot of these colleagues of mine for almost a whole year. So to be back in the studio with them creating something new was like really fulfilling. And, um, and then, you know, to be able to have the uh, ability to put it on film and, and we, we got back into a theater, we went to New York city center to film it. Um, and that's the first time that a lot of us had been back on stage in a year. Um, and that was just really kind of surreal and special. And, um, and now it's the sort of thing where, because dance is moving more virtually, you know, onto film, um, there's something kind of cool about that. As much as we all miss the the energy of performing for a live audience, there's something kind of nice about being able to put these works on film um, that can be viewed by anyone. Um, so you end up having a much larger audience. You know, it's like I participated in a project over the summer last year called Swan Lake Bath Ballet that garnered seven, seven million views or more than that. Um, and so, you know, the, under what other circumstance would you be able to perform for 7 million people? You wouldn't. So it's really, you know, it's really cool to now see how things have been evolving. I will say the virtual thing is, is really interesting. Like I said, I've gone to two virtual concerts in the last month, um, filmed from a, a, a warehouse in Nashville, done three, I've seen three virtual stand-up comedy, um, sketch comedy of uh, improv comedy shows in venues I would have never been able to get to. Tickets are too hard. Everything is like you said, everything. And I will say I'll, I'll do the promotion for Skylar because it's just so cool. 
available March 23rd at 7 p.m. on the New York City Center's website are the performances that Skylar has mentioned. Uh, the minimum purchase is $25 plus any donation we wish to offer to American Ballet Theater. Uh, and in those performances, you mentioned about training for being Princess Aurora. Your name is on the bill for Princess Aurora in The Sleeping Beauty. Uh, how does it feel to know like it's still coming to life even under circumstances that it came to be? That was a that was a big surprise to me. You know, when I first agreed to do this residency with ABT, we you know, I was under the impression that we would be creating a brand new work, which we did. But then on top of it, um, you know, New York City Center came to ABT and said, well, should we do a whole program of this particular choreographer's works? And one of those works he choreographed a full-length Sleeping Beauty, which was the one that I was meant to perform. And so um, my director said, well, let's excerpt a part of the Sleeping Beauty um, so that I can kind of have my my own form of a debut. Um, and it was, it was really amazing to be able to work on even just a small, very iconic section from this, this larger ballet. Um, and put it on film. And again, yeah, it's my, it's totally my debut in that role. And I just hope that in the future, I'll be able to perform the full, the full thing. It's just amazing. Um, and on that note, well, we, we want to close out our interview as we do with all of our guests in the famous three strikes in your out segment, but we're going to have a little bit of a twist for you. We're going to give you a couple options. Since you are an athlete and a performer, usually we ask this in all terms of baseball references. However, we're going to allow you to either pick a baseball reference or of your own reference from where you've performed. So the first question is three questions plus there's a bonus. So be aware of the bonus. What is your favorite baseball stadium or place where you have performed? Um, my favorite place that I've performed would have to be the Metropolitan Opera House. It really does feel like home to me. Um, and it's, you know, it's in New York City. It's the audience that I know and love. But on a larger scale, the Arena de Verona was pretty incredible because it's an outdoor like amphitheater with, again, that seats 20,000 people. And it was it was pretty amazing to to be in a theater of that capacity. That's uh, kind of crazy. It's like going back in ancient times, right? Performing like uh, in a Coliseum, for instance, and just having totally. the massive people. I have a funny story, a brief story about it. Um, when I, when we went, I mean, it, obviously in, in Italy, performances start a little bit later. Um, and I think our performance was meant to start at like maybe 10 p.m., and I had just gotten off a plane from New York. I was feeling jet lagged and crazy. And um, I was performing with a group um, headed by a dancer by the name of Roberto Bolle, who is basically the Brad Pitt of Italy. Um, he's like, looks like a god, um, like a, like sculpted. Um, he's like a fashion icon. He's a principal dancer extraordinaire. And he's just like the most famous person practically in Italy. And so of course, naturally he sold out the entire arena and there it was, it started raining and it's all outdoors and people did not leave their seats. They just sat there with ponchos on and, and umbrellas and were just waiting for the rain to pass. It's literally like two hours later and the people are still there, like hyped to watch Roberto Bolle and his friends 
perform. And at that point, like by the time I actually went on stage and I was so shocked that they hadn't canceled or postponed the show. But again, people were just going to stay put. They started like doing a wave in the stands. They were screaming, yelling. He walked out at one point and it was, it was literally like watching a gladiator, like the most famous gladiator, like enter, enter the stage. Um, people were screaming at the top of their lungs, like a rock concert or something. And by the, by the time I went on stage, it was one o'clock in the morning, Italy time. And I don't know what time it was here in New York, but I felt crazy, but it was like the most exhilarating experience because this crowd of 20,000 people, they were there to stay and watch and watch the show. That's incredible. I don't think, I don't think we could any, get any more person to tell us a story, anything greater than that. Uh, so our second question is, uh, same, same option, favorite baseball team as you're a New Yorker. Hopefully you pick Kazuki's favorite team, the Yankees in that one, or favorite ballet you have seen or performed in. Well, I mean, I feel like I would fail at the base baseball trivia only because I don't, I don't follow. Although I will say my one claim to fame, um, in baseball is when I was really, really young, still going to regular school. Um, I mean, my dad took pride in teaching all of us girls how to throw and catch. And we would like practice in the kitchen and, you know, I can throw a ball and I can catch a ball. Um, and I just remember being in PE, we were playing a baseball game and someone, I think I, you know, I was probably very disinterested in baseball. So I was in the like out, out, outfield kind of like just more observing, but not really participating per se. And someone, um, like hit the ball and it went so far out. It rolled like right to my feet. And I picked up this ball and I swear to God, like time stood still. And there was one boy in my, in my class who was going, throw it to me, throw it to me. Like he was like frantic, like screaming his lungs out at me. And we were probably in the second grade. And I just kind of like looked and I was like, I'm going to try to throw this myself. And I threw the ball to first base and I got the person out. And he, I remember he watched the whole thing and he turned around back to me and he started screaming. Cause I don't think he knew that I had that, that in me. And it was like my proudest baseball moment, probably my only baseball moment. Hey, it's great. Take it. But the, um, one of my, um, I have a couple of favorite ballets, but, but one of them has to be uh, actually a contemporary ballet called In the Upper Room. It's choreographed by Twyla Tharp and it's a, like 40, 40 minutes long. Um, it's a total marathon. I get to wear sneakers and pajamas on stage, the costume, and it's like totally, um, it's, it's one of these pieces where people exit the wing and they're vomiting and then they're going back on stage because it's that there's that much required, um, stamina wise of the dancers. And it's, it's, it's a really, really fun, fun ballet to do, um, with, with music by Philip Glass. But I think also Romeo and Juliet is one of my favorites. Um, it has a great score, um, and Don Quixote and, and Giselle now is, now is, a, is, as a ballet, a treasure. Both those stories are phenomenal. The one about the the effort and like the sprint, like you said, the marathon, four minute, the 40 minute sprint is just incredible. Uh, so the third question is favorite baseball player or favorite dancer you admired as a professional? Gosh, I think my fate, the, I, there's so many dancers that I looked up to um, when I was younger but I think my top ones were probably Irina Dvorovenko, who's a coach of mine now. Um, also, Marcelo Gomez, Angel Correa. Um, 
Nina Anishavili, um, all of these dancers. I mean, there was a there was a time at ABT when it was like every single night was like a star studded night. Um, and I was so lucky to have grown up in that time that ABT had all of these superstars. Um, it was so inspiring. But I think those were probably my top, top favorite, favorite dancers of all time. And, and the bonus question is simply if you could pick a topic for us to cover related to anything about sports in a future episode, what would you suggest? Hmm. Um, I think, gosh, that's a really great question. I feel like a, a wonderful topic is would probably be like mental fortitude. I always find it really interesting to discuss um, the mental game with, with athletes, you know, aside from uh, obviously the physical to demands, there's always that like performing under pressure, which obviously we spoke about already, but I always think it's interesting to hear um, everyone's take on that. You're the, actually the second guest to bring that up. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. Uh, our previous guest mentioned the book Grit by Angela Duckworth and talked about EQ. And you, as the athlete, bring that up too, makes me more intrigued to find someone to talk about that. So on that, we'll, we'll end our formal interview. And Skylar Brandt, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Um, as we said earlier, you can find your performances through New York City Center available online, uh, available from March 13th at 7 p.m. through April 18th. Scott performing in two of the performances, Princess Aurora and Sleeping Beauty, and as the principal dancer in Bernstein in a Bubble. Uh, where else can people follow you uh, if they wish to learn about more about what you do? You can just follow me on Instagram at Skylar Brandt. Um, and yeah, I'll have some other perf upcoming performances to share with you all and projects. And I thank you for having me on the show and, and asking such intriguing questions. That's it for this episode of Sarnar Baseball. This episode of Sarnar Baseball is hosted and produced by me, Kazuki Akiba and Brandon Beiser. This episode was edited by Kazuki Akiba with additional research by Brandon Beiser. Our theme song is by Kay Margus. Sarnar Baseball is a production of Daylight and Media 3 Limited. We'll be back with another episode. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast as more people will know about this show. Go to daylightinteractive.com to see some exclusive updates and more about our upcoming shows. I'm Kazuki Akiba. And I'm Brandon Beiser. And this has been Sound Our Baseball.